We're the sauce on your steak. We're the cheese in your cake. We put the spring in Springfield. We're the lace on the nightgown. The point after touchdown. Yes, yes we, we put the spring in Springfield. We're Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with... Big Savage. Welcome back, everyone. And right off the top, I have a bone to pick with my co-host here because uh, somewhat unusually, Will and I took about uh, 35 or 40 minutes after I arrived at the studio today debating uh, what our second movie for the week was going to be. The movie that we're talking about on this yeah, episode. Excuse me. The mo- that, yeah. Our first movie. First, second, irrelevant to you guys. But yes, the movie we were going to screen and then discuss... And, you know, we had we had some back and forths. We actually did settle on something, which I have a self-interested reason for bringing this one up. But uh, the real heads will remember many years ago on this show, we uh, discussed a very special little artifact called The Last Party, which was an early 1990s documentary in which uh, none other than Robert Downey Jr. gave us a sideways glance at the political culture of the time. Very much an Er Michael and Us movie. I mean, it sucks, but there's a lot to discuss there. Now, we discovered recently, possibly, Possibly thanks to a listener, so if that was you, uh, cheers very much, that there is a sort of a sequel or a successor movie with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman that is called, it's also called The Last Party, but it has another title, right, Will? It's also called The Party's Over, but it has also been called The Last Party 3. It's screened under several titles. I don't know what 2 is. Yeah, what's 2? It seems that every couple of years for a while, HBO would have a documentary where some (laughs) character actor, (laughs) some celebrity would... uh, They go to like the RNC and they're like, ooh, What's this? But this one, yeah, it was timed to the 2000 election. You know, true end of end of history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was Philip Seymour Hoffman going around. And I, honestly, it looks like it might be a little better than the Robert Downey Jr. one. That's my impression. And as actually, as Will was looking for it and I was reading about it, and I was like, I don't know, man. This one doesn't sound as bad, which means it's not going to be as fun. Anyway. It appears that Philip Seymour Hoffman has kind of Gen X left liberal politics. He's like, he hates both parties. He thinks they're the same yeah which, he gets, he, gets you know, he becomes nader curious it sounds like which i think is pretty cool like yeah. that that's better than most people his age yeah yeah but anyway we, we so we couldn't find this movie couldn't find it anywhere so this is like you know one of those lost uh, gems which somehow despite being produced by hbo you know like much of the cinema of uh patron saint of the show alexandra pelosi uh cannot be found anywhere so we were able to find one of her lost films because a kind listener uh helped us acquire one now that what that involved an elaborate sting where he got into an email chain with her husband and got the DVD sent and we paid for it. The perfect crime. <laughs> so yeah, listen, so don't put yourself in any danger uh, trying to track this down. But uh, seriously, yeah, if anyone has it on a, you know, DVD or a Blu-ray, you got a digital file sitting around somewhere, please do your boys a solid and send us 2000's The Last Party. Anyway, so once that had fallen through, Will made, I think, a pretty constructive suggestion. We were talking about watching various good movies and it didn't really work. Like I'd seen the one he wanted to, Will wanted to watch quite recently, but then Will had a constructive suggestion like, okay, what about a reactionary action movie. We do those sometimes. What about Death Wish 5? I was stumping pretty hard for Frederick Wiseman, and uh, we we agreed to do him next week. Yeah, coming soon. Note that Will's getting that on on wax, so that now it's a contract. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to hold me to that. Uh, But Luke was in the mood for something a little lighter, and you know what? Maybe I was too. Who knows? 
But when we thought reactionary action movie, it's like, yeah, let's let's have some fun. Yeah. You know? So so we watched Walking Tall. So we're obviously gonna have a proper discussion about this movie. But I just have to say right off the bat, Walking Tall was a bit of a disappointment to me. You promised me a good old fashioned, you know, Nixonian uh, silent majority movie. And it delivered on those terms. <sighs> Like, yeah, kind of. There wasn't enough action in this movie. There was no, like, big climactic shootout. It's, like, mawkish. Give me Death Wish, man. I just want, like, pure, like... Like, that movie is just, you know, sweat and blood. Uh, and I don't know. This movie was, like, corny and sentimental, despite being so violent. Well, we'll hash out this disagreement a little later on, but we have a sideways glance at the news of our own first. Well, you and I have had a number of conversations recently in which we've tried to articulate just our general frustration, our malaise with the current moment uh, that we're living through, which culturally and politically, as well as being uh, extremely dark and sinister, just feels sort of ossified and sclerotic. Like, it just feels like we're kind of relitigating the same things over and over again, reliving them. And that's why I was pleased to see this blast of fresh air. Just, you know, it's always nice when there's a lone voice in the wilderness who's willing to speak the truth. Came across this the other day because, as I'm sure you know, the uh, South Carolina primary occurred and uh, one Mr. Donald J. Trump was the victor over uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. And let me tell you, Rachel Maddow weighed in. I'm just going to read you the headline here from MSNBC News. Trump's rambling and incoherent victory speech leads to Maddow bestowing new nickname. So I saw this going around on Twitter and I had to make sure this wasn't from like 2016 or something. No, I assure you it's absolutely real. And let me tell you, I think this new nickname might catch on and might start to be a little bit of a problem for the former host of TV's The Apprentice. Uh, Maddow says there's a general incoherence. Uncle Ramble Standers thing going on with him. Say that again, Ramble Uncle Ramble Standers. It's the new epithet Trump's liberal opponents are hurling at him. And uh, I don't know, I'd be worried if I was him that that was going to stick. By the way, regarding Nikki Haley, I thought Edinger Mentum had a good point when he tweeted, the mainstream media is honestly doing their readers a bit of a disservice by covering Haley as a real primary contender who's getting crushed. Instead, they should cover her as a protest candidate who's doing pretty well given the circumstances. I take his point. And it has been funny to uh, watch the media cover the Republican primary like it's a real primary, you know, as if Trump isn't just going to walk away with it. And I mean, I don't know. I feel like I've been beating this drum for over a year. But, you know, Trump was always going to win the Republican nomination. Like Ron DeSantis was never going to be a thing. Like Nikki Haley was never going to be a thing. But yeah, I suppose, you know, Haley is better understood as a protest candidate. And that would be a more accurate way of for the media to frame these things. Uh, not like it fucking matters. But anyway, to, just to come back to this fucking Rachel Maddow thing. So look, I don't know what Umple Ramble Standers means. I was born in 1989, so if that's a that might be a dated reference, I have no idea. But God, I felt like I felt so deflated just reading this headline. Like it really just does feel like uh, 2016 was the real end of history, and we're just we're just gonna be trapped in it forever. Like just, I mean, this this is like even as the backdrop continues to change and show things like <laughs> you know uh, ethnic cleansing in the middle. Middle East. Uh, the foreground has all of these. Yeah, all the same cultural reflexes. Like right after this, I saw like Hakeem Jeffries saying something about, you know, how, well, you know, we stand ready to work with the Republicans in a bipartisan way on immigration or whatever. And it's just, we're just going to be trapped in this mode forever where liberals are simultaneously like the Republican Party has gone fascist. And also, why won't they friggin' work with us on immigration? And also, also, uh, yeah, we're going to, we're just one, we're just one nickname 
name away from stopping Donald Trump. Do you remember that clip of John Oliver and was it 2015 or 2016 where yeah, he, he uh, unveiled uh, the, of, the of Trump? Course, yeah. Of course I remember That's it. That's right. Sorry. I, uh, I don't even know how to talk do, about do this you know stuff who anymore. you're talking to? Of course I remember I'm it. sorry. I genuinely don't know how to talk about this stuff anymore. <laughs> I feel like a certain amount of exposition is necessary <laughs> here, but then I feel so unclean when I'm saying like, oh yeah, remember uh, 2016? Remember John Oliver's Trump thing and how it didn't work. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, Uncle Ramble Standers. I'm sure that'll catch on. Well, I have a couple of just quick hit media stories I'd like to acknowledge before we get into the movie. Uh, first of all, last week, Vice Media laid off um, all of their journalists, uh, every single one, I think, as part of a restructuring of the company. I don't want this to pass unacknowledged, partly because, you know, Vice, uh, you know it. There's nothing you can tell me about Vice that I don't know already. I know all the good things. I know all the bad things. Yes, I know who co-founded it. What I think is relevant in this scenario, though, is it met the same fate that every middle to upper middleweight media company that was seemingly thriving 10 years ago. Everything that was going to be the future of media. Yes, exactly. It met the same fate that all of them have been meeting at seemingly the exact same time. The carcasses have been eaten away by the vultures. The venture capital firms have completely made their way with them. And it doesn't matter if you think Vice was good or bad. It met the same fate that all of them did. Well, it, published, it certainly published a lot of good stuff. I, I like Vice. Yeah. Honestly, I've got some of the book anthologies. I mean, it's, you know, had several very distinct eras, all of which, you know, captured something of the time, you know? <laughs> That's one way of putting it. But yeah, it turns out that, uh, you know, having, you know, three private equity companies in a trench coat isn't a sustainable model for the future of journalism. So the middle class of journalism, not exactly prospering. Uh, but what about the other ends? On the lower end, you, of course, have, you know, bozos like us, guys with substacks and Patreons and... Uh, word presses and, and carrier pigeons and uh, little tin can telephones that we communicate through. And then on the other end, you have... Uh, we got the New York Times distinguishing itself yeah, with uh, the, the, some really good reporting that it's been doing on a recent conflict. Yeah, this is what I'm getting to. The failing New York Times. This week, they were investigating a reporter... Uh, scare quotes around reporter. Well, as I, as I understand it, I mean, I think it is actually fair to use scare quotes, right? Because yes. it turns out she doesn't actually have a background in journalism. She's a filmmaker or something. Uh, she's a filmmaker named Anat Schwartz. Investigation has also found that she served in the Israeli military intelligence. And then all of a sudden, after October 7th, uh, she began a very high profile career as a front page reporter at the New York Times. Her byline is on several very high profile and consequential stories about Gaza, most notably a December 28th story called Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th, a story that has largely been discredited. But now that screenshots of her liking certain posts and tweets and uh, Facebook posts, most notably one that advocated turning Gaza into a slaughterhouse, uh, the New York Times is doing a sort of investigation on her and maybe cutting ties I saw Ryan Grimm on Twitter uh, suggesting that he's about to drop a very large expose about this on The Intercept. Oh, yeah. The Intercept's been following this story for a while. I think both Ryan and also Jeremy Scahill and a number of their other reporters have been really on top of this story for a, a few months. And this will sound uh, very perhaps naive to say, but the past four months have really disillusioned me about American journalism in a way that I probably already should have been in light of its long history. Uh, but what can I tell you? I went to journalism school. I went to the journalism school. 
And certain things were drilled into my head over the years about what journalism is and what these, you know, mighty institutions like the New York Times do. And I don't have any profound point to make about this, except that if you haven't by now, it's best to readjust your understanding of what exactly the New York Times is. It's a complicated thing because, you know, there are good reporters at the New York Times. It has the funding and the infrastructure to be one of the only places that can do capital J journalism. And sometimes it does. But particularly the way they've handled Gaza has been an education for me. And maybe it's been for you too. Nah, man, I've been blackpilled since 2003. Yeah, yeah, maybe I should have been too. But look, everyone can get it wrong once or twice or three times or like, (laughs) you know... Well, speaking of getting it wrong, I had a much lighter media thing to discuss, which is, you know, I've been I've been tracking with, uh, I don't know, bemusement, this kind of meta discourse that's, I guess, an offshoot of the Joe Biden age discourse where, you know, Harrison Ford's 81. <laughs> right, right, right. So there was, you the, don't think he's too old. So there was, you know, the just months of denial or years of denial really about Joe Biden's cogency. But then now, uh, you know, that he did that disastrous press conference a few weeks ago, now, the you know, the parameters have kind of shifted where now the line is, well, actually, like, this is no big deal because we got an incumbent president who uh, uses notes to remind him of things. We got another one who tried to steal an election. So, you know, where do you come down on this, folks? And I don't know, there are a number of obvious things wrong with this. I mean, one, I mean, the, the discussion of Biden's competency is if that's the only reason he's so unpopular, you know, not anything he's actually doing, not anything he's presiding over just, you know, that he gets uh, the names of various heads of state wrong at press conferences or whatever. But I mean, to return to my earlier theme, this feels like another like just we're stuck in 2016 forever kind of thing. You know, there's now a whole meta discourse about how the media is covering Trump wrong. Have you seen this, Will? Well, speaking of the New York Times, I saw the editor or an editor of the New York Times say that they've received a lot of uh, negative pushback from the White House because they they dared, they dared to cover <laughs> the discourse around his age. And uh, by, by golly, they're going to publish all the news that's fit to print, no matter what the president says. <laughs> But no, you have, so you haven't seen this thing where various people kind of, you know, who work in the media, often for liberal outlets, you know, the, the, the new hotness is saying that the media hasn't been hostile enough to Donald Trump and it's, yeah. it's oh, normalizing yeah. him. Yeah. Which... He's hosting SNL all over again. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon's gonna mess up his hair all over again. Right. I mean, it do, it does feel like we're we're you know yeah we're back in 2016 again. The idea of normalizing the the, the president, the 45th yeah, the, president. Literally, he was the, the president. 45th and soon 47th president. Here, here's the thing. So I have I have two principal objections to this. First of all, I don't know how you can have been a human being who watches the news or reads the newspaper since 2015 and not think that the media has been hostile to Donald Trump. Like even in 2016, even parts of the conservative media infrastructure were were declaring war on Trump. So I think that's ridiculous. And also, look, I mean, to use the off-quoted phrase, beloved of my political idol, Pete Buttigieg, you know, we can walk and chew gum here. I mean, you can quite literally, as like an adult, 
think Donald Trump is bad and read stories about how he's bad and then also acknowledge that Joe Biden can be bad too. I mean, I, this binary that some people impose on, you know, objective reality where orange man bad and everything against orange man good, we're just forever stuck in a like butter emails kind of reality. So yeah, that's really annoying. But the other thing here that I just don't even know how to discuss except in the most world-weary way possible is the implicit belief or perhaps the explicit belief in these kinds of takes about media coverage of Trump that really, if the media reported on Trump properly, Trump would be vanquished. Which, if 2016 hasn't cured you of the idea that, you know, media is an answer to Donald Trump, I don't know what will. There have been these... There have been these grand narratives about politics, uh, beloved of liberals, that have been discredited again and again and again. And we just keep going back to these same stupid narratives again and again and again. Anyway, the reason I brought this up was actually because I had a different kind of take to share from one of my favorite commentators. This is Megan McArdle uh, from the Washington Post. Now, what's great about Megan McArdle is when she intervenes in a discourse like this, you are guaranteed she will give you a take that no one else is going to give you, where she's somehow failed to read the room so badly that, you know, I actually almost end up kind of liking her because I don't understand what parallel dimension she inhabits. But so this was her weighing in on the uh, on the Biden-Trump uh, media discourse. Becoming clear that an entire generation of younger progressives whose political character was formed during the Obama admin take the extra gentle media treatment he got as the baseline to which any Dem <laughs> president entitled. Hence their indignation when we do our jobs. So Megan McArdle is uh, offering us here a version of political reality where Joe Biden has a fighting Sardaukar of younger progressives, uh, you know, who who love Barack Obama and think that the media is just too hard on uh, kind old Uncle Joe. I have no idea where the fuck this is uh, coming from, but it's very funny. Democrat, Republican, all I want is a leader who can walk tall and carry a big stick. That's right. We are talking about 1973's silent majority classic, Walking Tall. When was the last time you stood up and applauded a movie? Audiences across America are standing up, applauding, and cheering a film called Walking Tall. I thought you walked tall! Look like you gotta learn how to crawl! You let them do this to me and get away with it, and you give them the eternal right to do the same damn thing to any one of you! Walking Tall. It's a deeply moving contemporary film based on the true story of a young man who wouldn't surrender to the system and the girl who always stood beside him. You gambled your life. And no one has come to say thank you. Maybe nobody really does give a damn. It's the picture your neighbors are talking about. It has been called the best American movie of the year. Join the audiences applauding. Walking Tall. Rated R. I'd just like to take a brief minute to discuss the Michael and Us Patreon. Patreon.com slash Michael and Us. You know it, you love it. If you're not on there, there's never been a better time. That's right. We just did our 500th episode. And I mean, we have we always have fun on this show, but I, I mean, that was for me at least one of the funnest ones we've done for a long time. And I think it's probably one of our most popular episodes in a long time. So if you want to hear us at our best, now is a great time to subscribe. There are also some recent episodes on Saltburn, Ozu's An Autumn Afternoon, as well as a solo documentary episode that I did on Eddie Anderson, a black entertainer who was pioneering and controversial in the 40s and 50s. Patreon.com slash Michael and us, five Yankee dollars per month. 
I want to show you something really cool, Luke. So uh, after Walking Tall, Phil Carlson, the director, and Joe Don Baker, instead of making Walking Tall Part 2, which was made by other people, uh, made a movie called Framed, which actually, unlike Walking Tall, totally kicks ass. So here's a scene. <laughs> this is one of the best stunts ever filmed. Okay, look at this. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. All right. Now that's pretty great. Can you put that in the show notes so that people can watch yeah, it so they yeah. know what we're reacting to? And I'm going to show you one other scene. Okay, now this is why Joe Don Baker should be a Clint Eastwood level national treasure. And if you ever think about coming back here to see me, just reach up there where that ear used to be. It'll remind you that you don't owe me a damn thing. We're even now, Frank. All right, wait for it. Even? You ain't even, Lewis. I'm gonna be back. You never even know your shoulder, Lewis. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you, Lewis. I'm gonna do it. You know, Frank. Honestly, believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so that—that's framed. For... Now, now, why couldn't Walking Tall be fun like that? Yeah, yeah. That movie kicks ass. So Walking Tall was directed by Phil Carlson, a favorite of mine. Uh, <laughs> I recommend people check out his film, The Phoenix City Story, as well as Kansas City Confidential. But again, we're not here to talk about those. But but I am the cinephile on the podcast. <laughs> I am the one who makes it his business to know who people like Phil Carlson are. This was an independent regional production. Phil Carlson, the director, was well into his 60s when it was made, which is, you know, well past retirement age for directors, at least in 1973. It starred Joe Don Baker, who at the time was a very little known character actor, and it became a blockbuster. The same year as The Exorcist, American Graffiti, and The Sting, and a year after The Godfather, the year before Chinatown and Godfather Part Two, Walking Tall made over $40 million at the box office, a genuine red state phenomenon. And I have a review here from Pauline Kale. Now, did she like it or did she not like it? Uh, she, she did not like it. She writes, The implied system of values in the early heroic westerns and action-adventure films began to be treated satirically in the counterculture movies of the Vietnam and Watergate years. But there were also some hugely popular 70s films, such as this one and Dirty Harry, in which the old values returned in a corrupt, vigilante form under the banner of law and order. This rabble-rousing movie appeals to a deep-seated belief in simple, swift, biblical justice. The visceral impact of the film makes one know how crowds must feel when they're being swayed by demagogues. You know, it's, it's funny, I'm reading that and I agree with every word she says, but also like that little flourish about demagogues at the end. It's like, that's such a New Yorker thing to write, well, you know? Do you, do you think, I didn't like that either, but do you think we're maybe reading it through kind of post-2016 discourse yeah, where we're, we're imagining a liberal critic sort of reviewing a movie like this and being like, ah, well, it is actually MAGA. But, you know, she's writing it less than 30 years after Hitler was alive. It probably was a little bit different to give her the benefit of the doubt. Well, and she's right about the movie, <laughs> which is probably the more salient thing here. This is um, allegedly based on the true story. Hang on, hang on. No, no. let's get the exact word. So, so uh, allegedly based on the true story, uh, this movie begins with one of the funniest disclaimers I have ever seen a movie open with, which is instead of saying based on a true story, which is the usual like Hollywood cop out when they've just kind of loosely taken some source material and optioned it. Here it says suggested by certain events 
events in the life of Buford Pusser. One disclaimer wasn't enough. At the end, it says, this motion picture is a fictionalized account suggested by certain events in the life of Buford Pusser. The fictitious characters and incidents of this motion picture are not intended to refer to actual persons or events, and any similarity is unintentional and entirely coincidental. Many animals were harmed in the making of this film. <laughs> yes, this is the kind of uh, less well-remembered, but equally successful at the time, rural equivalent of Dirty Harry. We all know that the big cities, they've been overrun by, uh, you know, vice and degeneracy. But what if I told you that even in white bread America, even in the red states, the rural townships, carpetbaggers and sin has <laughs> has come to infect the landscape. This movie, you know, I was so on board with it when it started because it begins with Jodon Baker as Buford Pusser and his adorable, innocent young family just driving along the country road. And you're and you're watching, you're thinking, golly, I'm, I'm so glad I'm watching a nice family movie and I'm able to just uh, let this, you know, idyllic white bread American family experience just kind of, you know, seep into me over the next few hours. And you think, God, it would just be the worst thing in the world if something, you know, happened uh, to this. But so the movie opens, I think, pretty strong. Just no subtlety, no nothing. It's just like, okay, folks, we're going down the Dolong River straight towards Cambodia. Like, what's going to happen? Yeah, so they get they get to their new house in uh, rural Tennessee. <laughs> and, and this is where he's from, so he's returning home. And he's just come back from a long and successful career as a wrestler. He was Buford the Bull. Before that, he served in the Army. In the, yeah, Marine Corps, yeah. And he's settling in for just a nice blue-collar, bucolic existence. Yeah, he's, he's really excited to retire at age like 45 or whatever he is. But uh, he finds out some things have changed in town, uh, and it, it don't represent all of town, but there's a new den of vice and inequity called the the Lucky the, the lucky Strike. What's it called? Something <laughs> yeah, like I don't that. know. The, the, the Lucky something or other, but... I call it the frickin' toilet is what I call it. <laughs> but... But importantly, we learn that he's actually left the, you know, distinctly highbrow and metropolitan world of professional wrestling to return to the bucolic abode from whence he came uh, because wrestling uh, was a corrupt system. The institutions, they were rotten, folks. He says he didn't want to do it anymore. It was organized dishonestly. It was a system. Sometimes they let you win. Other times they make you lose. We get we get the sense that there's some friction between uh, him and his wife, Pauline, played by Elizabeth Hartman, but he makes a solemn promise, which again, just right off the bat, you know, if, if you were under any illusions that anything uncomfortable or unfortunate lay ahead, he's here to reassure you, I ain't going to fight anymore. Buford's word. Yep. He's like Bruce Lee and the big boss. You know, he's made a solemn vow to keep those fists of fury wrapped up. But no, one of his no account friends says, you got to check out this uh, hot new hotspot, the, the Lucky Strike or whatever it's called. They go over there and it appears to be a sort of makeshift casino slash bordello. There are trailers around the place where people get up to whatever they get up to. Throughout the establishment, there's there's drinking. There are women scantily clad. <laughs> this ain't the uh, Tennessee County of his youth. The bar is serving Jack Daniels, a motif that recurs throughout the film and is supposed to represent iniquity. The bar is serving alcohol. Yeah, the bar, weirdly, uh, there's a number of working women, the median age of which looks to be about 50. They 
basically have curlers in their hair. And it turns out, uh, you know, he quickly discovers there's an even seedier room beyond the bar where people are drinking. And in this room, people are not only drinking, they're gambling as well. Can you believe it? By the way, I'd like to pause at this moment to talk about something that I like about this movie, which is... Okay, yeah, tell us, enlighten us. What do you like about this movie? Uh, I like a lot about this movie, but in particular... Look, I'm a Phil Carlson tourist. what can I say? Uh, but in particular, I like that, uh, you know, you mentioned that the women at the bar, it looks median age around 50. And I think that's something kind of realistic about the film. Well, the people do look normal. The actors and actresses look normal, including Jodan Baker. It's very funny to think this is what like a leading man, like today it would just be like one of the Hemsworth brothers or something. Or in 2003, there was a remake of this film starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. (laughs) And if you want to know where we've gone wrong as a society (laughs) in the 30 years between those films, that's that's what I would tell you. See, I disagree. I think it's good that we expect our leading men to lift, thank you very much, and have good genetics. Let me tell you, Jodan Baker, during one of the court scenes in this movie, takes his shirt off, and he's no Dwayne The Rock Johnson, I'll tell you that much. No, no, what he what he has is authentic charisma, which is something that you don't understand. You know, listen, you people listening, if you know Jodan Baker, you probably know him from Mystery Science Theater. You probably know him for those little, those insolent little robots making fun of him in Mitchell and Final Justice. But honestly, without irony, I kind of love him in this movie. I think he gives like a really rootin' tootin', like totally charismatic performance. You know, he has a real like, rough-hewn, inelegant charisma to him. And there are moments throughout this movie, particularly in the back half of the movie, when his acting is sort of like really raw and all over the place. And I think he has, yeah, he does have a very strange charisma and certainly a very strong physical presence that I miss in our leading, our Chris's and our Ryan's who are so like polished and airbrushed. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to be serious for uh, 20 seconds. I get emotional when I talk about Joe Don Baker. He means so much to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with you, the point you're making. I mean, it is it is nice to watch a movie where not everybody looks like they're, you know, ripped straight off of Instagram or something. I remember, uh, you know, when we watched All the President's Men, which, you know, whatever, it's fine. But I'm I'd really rather fine. watch this movie again, honestly. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> but I mean, that's another movie where, yeah, I don't know, just like the, the you know, people look normal. Yeah. And, and that that is nice. There was something about kind of mid-budget 1970s movies. You know, this was something uh, they, they had that was very much in their favor. Now, on the flip side, I think the movie looks like shit. It looks like a TV movie. You know, I'd like to have a word with the lighting guys. Uh, by the way, Phil Carlson did direct this, but it was written and produced by one Mort Briskin. So Mr. Briskin, whoever he was, uh, whoever he is. No Wikipedia page for got, him. He's got no Wikipedia page, but his fingerprints are all over this too. But I mean, you don't, I don't. Uh, I'm an tourist. I believe the director is the author of a film. <laughs> but like, you, you agree with me, right, about how this film looks, right? It's shit. Yeah, no, Um. I, uh, I, I actually have complicated feelings about that too. I mean, I, I'm really revealing myself as the kind of like brain damaged person. I thought I we were going to have nothing to talk about. But now now that Will's getting like precious about walking tall, I think we're going to have fun today. Yeah, I actually I actually <laughs> sort of like how basic and functional the movie looks. <laughs> and it is funny. It's like The Godfather came out the year before where it's like, you know, Gordon Willis in that movie is painting with light. You know, yeah, it's I, like a fucking Rembrandt painting. I wish we'd watch that. <laughs> and in this and in this one, it's just so like basic and direct. This is fucking what it looks like. This is, you know, ex- <laughs> exploitation movies of any given time period will tell you so much about the world that they're made in because they didn't have any fancy schmancy like sets. This is all found locations. Buford's house in this movie yeah, looks sucks. looks awful. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I love that. It's like, wow, this is what a sort of like middle class Tennessee home in 1973 looked like. That may not be an argument in favor of the movie so much as in the movie as a time capsule. It is funny how everything kind of looks 
looks like shit, including the bar. I mean, I guess that does kind of lend itself somewhat to authenticity. Yeah, to I don't know what the film is doing. But I don't know. Honestly, at times I could easily have imagined the Mystery Science Theater silhouettes being over this movie. Like, I, I agree with you about uh, Joe Don Baker's performance, but a lot of the, you know, secondary characters in particular. Oh, like, yeah. The acting is so shitty. The the writing is just so cliche. Well, the the writing. We need we need some robots riffing over it. You're you not know? you're not going to see me making any case for this movie's writing, but you know, funnily enough, when we get back to the style, or should I say, the non-style of the film, it makes the brutality of the violence kind of pop in a way and this isn't necessarily to the film's favor because it's part of the movie's noxious agenda it's you know hideous reactionary manipulation that it tries to pull off but like without getting too far ahead of ourselves towards the end of the movie when a major character is shot in the head i mean fucking shot in the head yes. right in front of you it pops for me so much in a movie that otherwise looks so blandly functional you know it's funny this movie came out what four or five years after the Hollywood self-imposed censorship was finally dissolved and the new rating system was introduced, GPGRX, which brought a new freedom to movies. And if you lived in one of the states where Walking Tall was a huge hit, you may associate that freedom with things that are bad. You might say, oh, the screen's gotten so licentious. There's so much gratuitous sex and violence. But then here comes this movie, which is as disgustingly violent as any movie from that era, and also as leering and like fucked up sexually as any movie from that era? I, no, I, I completely agree with you, Will. I think for me, the problem is that I would have actually liked it if this movie had just completely leaned into being like a shit B movie rather yeah. than a sort of, you know, reactionary blockbuster that also tries to have it both ways, which we'll come back to that in a sec. But the fact that in this movie, there are, you know, some decidedly like MST3K type things, like it wants you to think that they're selling Jack Daniels. Like <laughs> that, that, like that is as evil as anything could be like would you believe it in this Tennessee County there's people selling sex we actually there seems to be drug free there's no drugs in this county there's moonshine but there's yeah there's moonshine there's people selling sex there's people drinking uh, Jack Daniels and there's people playing like blackjack in the back room of the local bar and one of the things that does not work about this movie for me and feels yeah decidedly something that would be lampooned on Mystery Science Theater is the film gives so much weight to the seriousness of all these crimes that it makes like you know the local committee to do evil, the local crime syndicate or whatever, like they're willing to murder multiple people in order to, yeah, preserve this thing where they can, yeah, <laughs> the bar can sell Jack Daniels. There is one scene where this, you know, suit from the state capitol comes in, you know, after Jodan Baker becomes sheriff. We'll come back to the plot in a sec, I promise. Tell you what this movie's actually about. But, you know, this suit comes down from the capitol and he's like, oh, you know, son, I understand. You want to do your job. It's a big, big britches you got to fill here. But, you know, uh, some of this stuff, this goes all the way, this goes high up, up to people in the Capitol. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure the, like, illicit Jack Daniels business, I'm sure people in the Capitol, you know, they're all over this. Someone get the senator on the phone. So I don't know, this movie actually ended up being too mid for me. Like, I was yeah. hoping politically it would actually make fewer concessions because, you know, it is a reactionary movie. But as I said, and, and as we'll discuss, you know, it very much tries to have it both ways. 
is, you know, that's not what you find in like a Death Wish film or something, which is kind of what I was hoping for. But then also it's got all these like B-movie touches, but then it's got a number of things like a kind of a self-seriousness that to me undermines the found gritty quality that I feel like you're celebrating in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I cannot offer a full-throated defense of this movie. It's 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 self-evidently <laughs> ridiculous. All right, but, but, you, but, but you are right that especially in the second half of the film, this movie takes certain um, artistic strategies, let's call them, that are not quite reconcilable with its baser impulses. See, we all had a nice long vacation with Faye. Now we're going to go back to the war. We're going to take up exactly where we left off. Only this time we're not going to separate. We're going to hit them as a team everywhere in force. Any questions? I'd like to call home, tell them I'll be late. No calls, no radio communications, and nobody gets out of my sight. Okay, we'll start with the stills. Getting back to what the movie's about. So, and remember, this is a motion picture suggested by certain events in the life of Buford Pusser, (laughs) sheriff of McNary County, Tennessee, a living legend. (laughs) So Buford and his family come to town. He's he's found the uh, den of ill repute. And then the den's shifty owners are trying to cheat in blackjack. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't have a problem. He doesn't have a problem with the gambling. It's just that they try to cheat him out of his thirty five dollars. He starts a fight and he does wrestling moves. (laughs) Okay, the fighting in this movie was like laugh out loud funny because yeah, he's doing Captain Kirk shit where he's like doing that thing where he'll like put both his hands together and like as like one big fist, double the fist and smack a guy in the face or like, yeah, hold two guys by the hand and like flip them over in the air. But unfortunately, even Buford the Bull is overpowered. (laughs) Yeah, even this guy that did staged wrestling uh, couldn't overcome, uh, yeah, the like seven guys who beat the shit out of him in the bar. So they pin him down, they carve up his chest with a knife and they leave him for dead at the side of the road. After a period of recovery, he comes back to the lucky spot or the lucky strike. Yeah, little little do these guys know that he has a very special set of skills that can make life very difficult for guys like them. His very special set of skills are he comes under cover of night with a big two by four. (laughs) Just a huge stick. They all have guns and he's just got this giant piece of wood. Which I think is supposed to be symbolic. Like, it is supposed to represent the thesis of this movie, which is, like, sometimes you just need, like, brute force to smash through, like, iniquity and corruption. Yeah, I think Dr. Freud could do something funny with that stick. (laughs) So he comes there and he, he fucks the place up. He smashes it up. And of course, would you believe it, the corrupt system, the next day he gets arrested for like assaulting people and trespassing and property destruction. Trespasses, yeah, smashes up the bar, beats like seven guys within an inch of their life, then goes over to the the teller or whatever and is like, okay, that'll be $3,500 because you guys destroyed my car, my shirt, and I want my like winnings, my $35 that you took from me or whatever. And he doesn't want any more than that because he doesn't want a handout, just a hand up. He's not a criminal. He's a man of justice. He's not a criminal despite having... Having just done a million criminal acts. And then we get to this court scene, which again, laugh out loud funny. I, I like the first half of this oh, movie yeah. so much better than the second half. They arrest him for the crime of doing crimes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. And then he refuses to get a lawyer. Like there's no uh, public defender or whatever. He's like, your honor, I'll represent myself and I'll take a jury trial. Thank you very much. And so the judge says, well, okay, we're going to have the trial tomorrow. And he says, what do you mean? Only a day to prepare for my trial? The judge says, well, you gave up your right to an attorney. And I'm on the judge's 
judge's side here, frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So the state, the prosecution, lays out a pretty coherent case against him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, he showed up with a big stick, hurt yeah. a lot of people, destroyed a lot of Stole things. Stole money. <laughs> and uh, incredibly, Jodon's one witness is found dead. Yeah, yeah. Slam dunk case against him, by the way, but they still killed his only witness. Yeah, yeah. Some some guy comes up to him and, and whispers in his ear that, yeah, the only witness was found dead. And then amazingly, he's on the stand and his case is not, Your Honor, I didn't do it. It's, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I did do it and it was actually good. I didn't go into rob any gambling house with just a stick. I went in there to remind him that somewhere in this world there's still a little law and order left. To let them know in the only kind of terms that their kind understand is that they can't five bribe or threaten their way out of what they did to me. They did this. You're out of order! You're out of order! You're out of order! Stop it right now! Stop it! Your Honor, state objects to it. You let them do this to me and get away with it, and you give them the eternal right to do the same damn thing to any one of you! You're out of order, sir! And put on your shirt! He pulls off his shirt and shows his messed up chest. He says, they did this to me and they're going to do it to you too, unless you stop them. The jury goes out and deliberates for five minutes and they come back and he's cleared of all charges. He's innocent because as, as our great president said, there's a silent majority out there. Yes, yes. And this is what Pauline Kael, I think, was alluding to in that turn of phrase in, in her review that I suspect only irked us because of how we imagine a pundit, you know, in The New Yorker might use it now. I mean, she she's right. You can see uh, demagoguery in this film for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This film is against due process. <laughs> Like the argument made by this scene with the trial is that uh, actually two wrongs do make a right. <laughs> like these guys beat him up and uh, he went back and like repaid them like three times over. And he was cheated out of $35, took 10 times that amount from them because they destroyed his car or whatever and his, and his jacket. And look, all he did is go and get justice. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. And yeah, to go back to what you said, the politics of this movie very much are, you know, an Exonian silent majority thing where, you know, you might look at this movie superficially and think, oh, well, yeah, the local judge is corrupt. You know, the sheriff at the start of the film is corrupt. The political class in the county seem corrupt. And hey, you know, that's perfectly believable. But the thing is, kind of like the Death Wish movies, this is a movie where the thesis is kind of like, look, reactionary law and order stuff is not enough, okay? The public are baying for blood. And this man who's gotten up and like smashed together the local watering hole and like beaten seven guys to within an inch of their lives, he actually, he is all of us. He's doing the thing that the bureaucrats and the politicians won't let us do. Which uh, I gotta say, I don't really agree with that. I find that somewhat objectionable. Well, what if I told you that Buford Pusser made the world safe for Sheriff Joe Arpaio? <laughs> So anyway, Buford Pusser is pretty high off his completely undeserved legal victory. And, and would you believe it that his wife, Pauline, wants him to move? Oh, man. Played by Elizabeth Hartman in, I think, a haunting performance. She has a thousand yard stare throughout this whole movie that, I mean, it's a horribly underdeveloped female character. In this movie? No. I, I think she imbues it with a certain tragic dignity. But yeah, fellas, don't you hate it when your stupid wife insists that you leave the town? where you grew up, came back to, got beaten within an inch of your life, uh, nearly went to prison for 30 years, and then the main witness in the case got killed and you only got off because he did some demagogy to the local jury. Don't you hate it when your stupid wife wants you to leave town? But Buford gets it in his head that, you know, maybe a man who walks tall and carries a big stick can go a long way. What 
if I ran for sheriff against the corrupt incumbent? <laughs> yeah, this movie is exactly like that uh, Breck and Meyer movie we watched, right? Where at the end, it's like, don't protest the system, get involved, run for off. Dismantle yeah. it from the inside. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know, yeah, we've yeah. got to destroy law and order in order to save it. That's right. And uh, the election is so funny because uh, we don't really see an election take place. Like they don't seem to do like a local debate at the town hall or whatever. Well, I, the, the election is marked by tragedy because you'll note that the incumbent sheriff who is a monster, you know, first he's tearing down Buford Pusser's campaign signs and then he's trying to drive him off the road. He's letting the criminals sell Jack Daniels. And during a vehicular confrontation, Buford outsmarts him and the sheriff drives off the road. Yeah, don't let Buford's crude manly appearance fool you. He completely outwits this guy by uh, stopping his car and getting out. And standing and, next to the bridge. Yeah, standing in the middle of the road and <laughs> the stupid sheriff, I guess, swerves at the last minute and like flies off the bridge. And there was another laugh out loud moment in this scene because you see the sheriff's car flying through the air and then before it's made contact with anything, it just explodes midair. <laughs> <laughs> but Buford saves the sheriff's reluctant <laughs> deputy. Yeah. Well, for a minute here, it was like, I don't understand what this scene is because he's running in an election and it's like, oh yeah, I killed my opponent in a violent car crash, no witnesses. But it turns out that for some reason, the sheriff's deputy, who was also just kind of going along with this, well, I guess. I guess reluctantly. He, <laughs> guess, b- because yeah. here, here's the thing, like the system is corrupt, but the frontline officers, you know, the rank and file, they're with Buford. So when Buford wins the election, which they wake him up in the middle of the night to tell him he's, he's won the election. <laughs> yeah, he's, this is so funny. Like, he's at home. He has no campaign event. Where are Buford's campaign workers? That's what I want to know. And yeah, some some car just drives up, and it's got, like, his mom in it, and, like, it's a police car chauffeuring her there. And they're like, Buford, you won! On his first day on the job, the movie's complicated racial politics come into play. If I tell you that this is a Nixon silent majority movie, you may think, oh, it's probably racist. And it is, but <laughs> but in a, in a cool sort of uh, liberal way. You see, Buford, during Buford's day job at the mill, he becomes reacquainted with his old friend from the army, Obra, played by Felton Perry. Obra is a black man who, as the owner of the mill says, Yeah, he says, I used to employ his daddy, but then, you know, he got educated, you see. He came down with a case of that new social disease, black power. And then he adds, just, you know, in case anyone's worried that he's racist, he says, Look, I believe in equality, but I don't like having it forced on me. So Buford is to the left of that. Buford is like, you know, down with black people. In fact, even campaigns at the local black establishment. Okay, okay, can we we talk about... Please. This is one of the weirdest things in this movie, and it seemed very like MST3K to me. The people who made this movie imagined that a small town in Tennessee would have a club where hundreds of people gathered to listen to like funk and R&B. We're watching the movie with subtitles, and every time we entered this space, it just said urban music playing. And I mean, it does kind of uh, accidentally make a good point. I don't think a small town in Tennessee would have a club like this. It just doesn't really make any sense. It's like, it's shoehorned into the movie as kind of a device for the film to be like, oh yeah, but we're, we're not racist. Look at this. Buford Pussy is, uh, he's listening to some soul jams, okay, folks? And he's not racist at all. But on his first day on the job, Buford hears of eight black people who died because of poisoned moonshine. At a, at a civil rights picnic, we're told. So what does he do? He drives up to his old friend, 
Obra and says uses some very impolite terminology. But really, if I were to boil it down, if I were to, to translate it to you, he basically says, listen, you think this black power stuff is great, but what if I told you about a man named Booker T. Washington? <laughs> what if I told you that you can actually do something for your race? And hey, yeah. you, you may think all cops are bastards, but at the end of the day, uh, those bastards are going to protect the community. So how about get a badge and join me? This scene is weird. It's like, ugly. Well, I don't no, like it. No, because the scene, the scene's really ugly. That goes without saying, but just, I want to make a comment about the way this scene is used to advance the plot. I, I don't know. This is just, this is just lazy writing to me. This is one of those things where when you step back and think about it, the seams of this movie that are holding it together not very well become extremely visible because he just goes to his friend and he's like, hey, a bunch of your brethren, you know, died at this, uh, this civil rights picnic. Don't you want to help them? So, you know, give me a tip. And then his friend Oprah just knows. He just has to be convinced by this kind of like racist dressing down he gets. And he's like, yeah, there was some some Arkansas boys out in the woods. I'll show you. And it's like, why does he know where this is? Because presumably all the black people in town know where all the illegal black businesses are. I guess that is the implication. And then he just offers him on the spot when Oprah says, fine, I'll help you. It's like, okay, here you go. Here's a badge and a gun. You're deputy sheriff of the so, county. So yeah, they, yeah. they... So he just gives the guy a gun. So they go out to the illegal moonshine operation in the woods and, you know, it's like six or seven black men working on... There's a white guy at the top, though. White guy at the top. This movie is always covering its ass. And Obra, he's wearing his uniform, he's holding a gun and this is... This is such a, a great moment because he kind of loves holding the gun. And this is supposed to be like a sort of empowering moment. It's like, yeah, isn't this great? You know, you may think Buford's a fascist. He's made the police diverse. Um, but what it's actually saying is, yeah, give anyone a little bit of power and they're going to abuse it. You're going to love holding that gun. This was another laugh out loud scene in the movie to me. Or, or I should say the one that follows it was because then we get we then get a second court sequence where, again, the setup is these two guys did something wildly illegal. And then they're very mad that the judge lets the guys off because the judge basically says oh you know we're letting these uh these eight men doing their legal moonshine off because uh you guys didn't have a warrant it's an, an invasion of privacy you just showed up and you like you know beat them up you and didn't stuff read and, them their rights yeah you can't do that and it's like uh yeah they definitely didn't follow proper procedure here so uh yeah i'm kind of on the judge's side with this one so yeah after that buford resolves to read the goddamn law book <laughs> this was so amazing yeah he picks up the criminal code for the county and then he's reading about like what his rights are as a sheriff and it's like you knew you could have read that on the first day and maybe 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 those guys would be behind bars if you'd learned the proper procedure and then there's this really weird scene where he's gone off and he's done his homework and he's set up a little uh, ad hoc sort of office space in one of the weirdest bathrooms I've ever seen depicted in a movie. Well, he's consigned the cocked lib judge <laughs> to the bathroom. He's put his desk down there and says, well, article this or that says that I can put the judge's quarters wherever I want them. And what's weird about the bathroom, what kind of fascinated us is there were three toilets all side by side, not in stalls. There's, there's a row of urinals, like normal enough. And then next to the urinals like almost in like the same continuous row there's just three toilets i've never seen this before i mean what clearly happened is they got to the bathroom and somebody said because of the stalls you can't see the toilets like it's not visually communicating that this is a bathroom clearly enough take the stalls out just show the toilets why didn't they just have the urinals mr mort briskin do better 
Now, the second half of the film becomes... This is where I kind of... <laughs> well, it becomes quite durational. Oh Let's put it gosh. that way. <laughs> the movie is 125 minutes. It feels oh. it feels like three hours. Oh. Weirdly, I think it's supposed to feel three hours. Like, if the movie's working on you, you're going to kind of feel at home with these characters and you're going to follow them as they take a lot of detours and they take some wrong turns as the criminal cartel starts to get wise to them. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth in the plot. Also, you can feel the walls kind of closing in on Buford as the criminal cartel becomes more and more blatant. You know, they kill his dog, they kill his wife. They just like show up at his house one night, a guy just like shoots in the window and then before he he shoots the guy, you know, his dog goes after him and gets shot. Act three of the movie, which really felt like an hour longer than it actually was, it was really losing me and I agree with you, Will, that I think there is a point to it. If the movie succeeds with you, if it connects with you, there is some method to the madness here because the reason act three goes on for such a long time is because you're supposed to think okay he's the sheriff now so now justice will be done and he's taking every means he's read the rule book he knows what the law is that he's supposed to enforce so he's doing every strategy and as he's doing every strategy the villains are getting more and more villainous and so what happens they shoot his wife in the goddamn head Uh, in one of the most like it's shocking honestly yeah this is incredible because he gets an early morning call like a kind of a sketchy phone call where it's not exactly clear what's going on and he's like uh oh sorry honey just before breakfast i'm gonna ride down to this uh i got another tip on an illicit moonshine operation i hear they're moving some crates of jack daniels and she's like oh i want to see how my husband makes his good honest christian living and you think by this point of the film this man has had his stomach sliced open i think he's been shot at least once if not twice two weeks ago your dog was killed that's right uh he's been on trial nearly went away for 30 years and the lead witness on the case was found dead in a river. They tr- they tried to drive him off the road. That's right. But yeah, the local the town is so debased and corrupt that the sitting local sheriff tried to murder him for running against him. So I'm just I'm just going to say maybe don't don't go for a ride along. And yeah, she gets her head blown off, which is kind of, in a way, a courageous choice for the movie. Well, I think the way that it's filmed, I mean, it has a certain blunt force power to it. Like, there's a shamelessness to it that I respect in a weird way. It's not beating around the bush. It's saying, they're shooting his wife in the goddamn head. Now, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, forget it, Jake. So then there is the movie's kind of longest, uh, longest section, which is him. You know, he's been shot, too, so he's recovering in the hospital. There's the funeral. The funeral goes on for a really long time. The movie is incredibly downbeat. I love, though, the touch that, like, he got, Buford got his son a little BB gun for Christmas. Or was it a gun gun? No, no, no. I think it's a real gun. At the beginning of the movie, when they first get back to, you know, the family homestead, he hands his son an unloaded gun and he says, you know, my grandpa gave this to me when I was nine years old. And at that point in the movie, we're thinking... Gosh, and it's great that little Billy will never have to use it. This is how the cycle of violence continues, folks. That's right. But then, yeah, there's this great Christmas scene before Pauline gets shot where little Billy is rustling around beneath the Christmas tree. And it's like, oh, what did Santa bring me? And there's yeah, something that's obviously a gun. It's like, son, Santa brought you a 22. Okay, use it wisely. By the way, speaking of the filmmaking, I love how that Christmas scene, you see Buford's Christmas tree and all the tinsel. It's then immediately juxtaposed with Christmas at the Lucky Spot. 
spot where there are also decorations up and the visual contrast I love. (laughs) This I also found very funny. And this speaks to what I was talking about earlier, where, yeah, the movie is trying to invest such great weight and, yeah, the evil and iniquity that's represented by the bar. And then what it shows us is basically like a kind of somewhat muted, like obligatory office Christmas party that people have to go to. It's like there's people that are kind of doing like, I don't know, something that's like the twist. You know, it reminds it reminds me kind of of the office Christmas special, like the party at Wernham Hog. You know, I kind of think that uh, people are just minding their own business. But it turns out that the evil lady who runs the bar is incensed that Jodon Baker won't let her sell Jack Daniels. And as soon as he comes in the joint, she shoots at him. But, you know, he's been doing target practice. He's been doing skeet shooting in his backyard with his son. And he just, yeah, shoots her clean in the head twice, twice in the dome. You know, I think Buford Pusser should read Samuel R. Delaney's book, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, where he made the case that the porno movie theaters in Times Square were cruising grounds that fostered interactions across class and made a case for it as a sort of utopian social space. I think the lucky spot could be like that, you know? (laughs) So anyway, yeah, his wife, you know, domed. She's gone. Yeah, then the funeral takes like 15 minutes. And and if the movie's working on you, it's really working on you here. And there's these scenes of like they meet at the sort of local committee to do evil meets in the back, you know, the space that started it all where they cheated Jodon Baker out of, you know, his $35 in like a dice game or something. And then, you know, (laughs) for the next several weeks, he just went on a rampage and shot multiple people dead, including the local sheriff. But you're right, Will, that if the movie's working on you, you know, you're not going to be bothered by how drawn out the third act is. I mean, for me, I just thought it should have gone from him becoming the sheriff and then, I don't know, something happens that makes clear, you know, there needs to be one big final climactic showdown and that's it. But the sensibility underlying this movie, I think, in spite of all the explicit violence and the ugliness it shows you, the underlying sensibility, I think, is fundamentally cloying and mawkish. Like, you're supposed to be weeping. You're supposed to go into it as somebody who, like, actually unironically watches the opening montage of them, like, driving into town all smiley and happy and be, and be like, oh, this is so nice. It would be a shame if, you know, institutions were corrupt and this family couldn't live its life. You're supposed to just be constantly outraged throughout the movie that, you know, the institutions of this, you know, county in Tennessee, that famously not corrupt institution, you know, like the county sheriff's office. You're, you're supposed to be really frustrated and kind of surprised at every stage by how corrupt it is and, and how evil the local, you know, bootleggers are. And for me, I mean, it just it just didn't work on me, not only because I don't share the film's politics, but because I think the film executed them rather badly. This movie could have been paced quite differently where it actually takes Jodon Baker a while to realize, you know, how bad everything is. Things could have been worse. Like the film could have showed us more scenes of actual, you know, evil. You know, when we're shown explicit violence, it's usually because he's involved in a shootout of some kind. But then the worst stuff that comes out of this crime syndicate, like the eight people dying at the picnic from the poison moonshine, we don't even see the crime. And so I feel like in a number of respects, the film aired there. I guess there's the one really ugly scene with the woman in the back of the bar that we didn't talk about. Oh, yeah, where she's tied up and being whipped. And it's not it's not really clear what's uh, what's going on there. But the evil woman who runs the bar and some of her henchmen are, yeah, abusing some woman in the back of it. And, you know, he intervenes at one point. There's actually a character we didn't even talk about. There's a character called Callie Hacker who's working in the bar when he first goes in, played by Rosemary Murphy. And she ends up 
up tipping him off to something and he sort of says, oh, here's some money. You know, you're one of the good ones. Get out of town. Find a different job. But anyway, the movie takes such a circuitous route to reach a conclusion that I think we all know is coming. Which is Buford's final solution to the lucky spot problem. (laughs) He gets behind the wheel of his car, drives straight from the funeral to the lucky spot, and he fucking rams right into it. And he fucking kills a guy. Don't forget, he's been badly wounded by this point. So he's got... He's like the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's wearing something that looks like a cross between a Phantom of the Opera mask and like a Bane mask. He can't even speak and he just goes and has like a final showdown with, I don't know, yeah, the two guys who shot his wife and like, uh, you know, wounded him. And this frustrated me too because I was expecting a bigger payoff. But basically after the movie has subjected you to this mawkish third act that feels an hour longer than it is and I don't feel is really warranted, you get to the end of the movie and the, the big climactic scene is that he goes and just, yeah, effortlessly deals with these two like old men who've shot at him, leaves them dead or bleeding out. And then the whole town just shows shows up. The whole town, which, need I say it, is the market for all of the, like, crime that's going on. Like, what do you think is the public that's keeping that going? But they all turn up. And this is exactly just the the same as the jury scene early on in the movie. And this is why it is truly a silent majority type of movie. Because at every stage, despite the fact that it's offering you this, you know, horrific, fascistic vision of vigilante justice, it's giving it this kind of uh, quasi-populist sheen where it's saying, no, 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 the jury's on his side. No, 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 the rank and file officers who worked for the corrupt sheriff, no, they're they're good guys. They're all good guys with guns. No, 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 this town that has been patronizing, you know, the local uh, den of iniquity, uh, they're actually glad to see the regime overthrown. And then everybody just drives up. Like, the whole town has apparently driven over from the funeral, and then they just grab all of the furniture and all the stuff in the bar, and then they symbolically burn it in a great bonfire. And the film is saying, you know, in spite of everything, folks, we shall overcome. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think validating my thesis on this movie that it is fundamentally, for all the violence and ugliness it shows you, a mawkish and cloying piece of garbage. It ends with something that I don't know, presumably is called like the walking tall suite or something. By no less than Mr. Johnny Mathis. Yeah. And it's basically just like if We Are the World was written in rural Tennessee. And now Luke and I are going to end this recording by watching another great scene from the movie Framed in which Jonah Baker gets into one of the great screen brawls of all time. This is when men used to know how to fight. (laughs) Two guys, big slabs of fucking meat just... I mean, there is, there is honestly something to this is like, because like, this is how, what, this is what it actually looks like when two like, yeah. out of shape middle-aged guys have a fight. Yeah. Like, you know, this movie was a flop, but what's crazy is it's like 10 times better than Walk and Call, you know? It's just, it, but it doesn't have like any politics. It's just, you know, a, a revenge movie. Oh, love it. The world's begun to I'll tell you why she's lying and gray. We read of hate on every page, then turn our backs and walk away. Why can't we stand?